0: You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This week on The Takeout, retired Navy SEAL and freshman Republican Congressman from Texas, Dan Crenshaw. Five,
1: four, three, two, one, zero. Ignition. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi.
0: Ladies and gentlemen... Please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's
1: capital. Major, fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better.
0: Thank you, thank you, thank you. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, Chief Washington Correspondent, CBS News, and host and creator of this most amazing program known as The Takeout, where we are two things each and every week. Dear audience, I think you know what they are, but for those who are brand new, let me remind you. What are those two things? Relentlessly curious, steadfastly non-ideological. That's why this audience is the hardest working audience in show business, because you have to listen to people you don't always agree with. And I appreciate you for doing that. In whichever way you find this program, nearly 60 radio stations around the country, our podcast platform, and, of course, on CBSN. Delighted to tell you we're taking the show on the road again, yet again in Texas. How lucky are we to be back in Texas? Started my career in Texas, if you don't know. Amarillo, Texas, a long, long time ago as a police reporter at the Amarillo Globe News. We're in Houston, not Amarillo. And we're at Carbach Brewing, which is a craft brewery here in Houston. We're in Texas because I'm going to be doing a three-meal segment for CBS this morning, but we found a way to create a podcast while we're on the road. Delighted to do so. And our special guest this week is someone you might have seen on Saturday Night Live. We'll get to that in a second. No, he's not a comedian. We've had them occasionally. No, this is a member of Congress. Hold the jokes about members of Congress. Hold them. Dan Crenshaw is our guest. Dan, freshman, congressman, second district of Texas. Great to have you. Thanks for joining us. Right. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Major. It's good to be here. It's it's uh it's good to meet you know, and uh, folks you might not understand this about this show. There are often times with this show when I do the show and I'm meeting the guest. The interviewee for the very first time. Dan and I are meeting for the very first time. Congress, The congressman and I are meeting for the very first time. And that's okay with them and it's okay with me. Um, and we just spring forth and have the conversation because this show is always a conversation, not an interrogation. And I want to start everyone at sort of what I consider a cultural moment. For Dan, uh, for the entertainment industry, possibly, maybe for America a teeny bit. Some of you may be familiar with it, it, but those of you who aren't, we're going to start there. Arden, I want you to play the Saturday Night Live clip that talked about Dan Crenshaw shortly before Election Day 2018 and then what happened after. Play them both, please, Arden. This
1: guy's kind of cool, Dan Crenshaw. Uh, Oh, come on, man. Hold on. Uh, You may be surprised to hear he's a congressional candidate from Texas and not a hitman in a porno movie. (laughs) Uh, I'm sorry. I know he lost his eye in in war or whatever. (laughs) Whatever. I mean this uh, from the bottom of my heart. It was a poor choice of words. Uh, The man is a war hero, and he deserves all the respect in the world. And if any good came of this, maybe it was that, for one day, the left and the right finally came together to agree on something, that I'm a You think? (laughs) Okay,
2: but seriously, there's a lot of lessons to learn here. Not just that the left and right can still agree on some things, but also this, Americans can forgive one another. We can remember what brings us together as a country and still see the good in each other.
0: Wow, that's a hell of a moment. Uh, Now, we're going to get into moments in your life that were far more dramatic and far more consequential. We'll get to them, I promise. But walk us and my audience through that entire experience.
2: Well, uh, so that the first part of that clip, which was the uh, you know the, the infamous mistake by Pete Davidson, and that happens on a Saturday night, of course, it's Saturday Night Live, and that's a that's a that's a couple days before the election on uh, November, what was it, sixth, I believe. So we are in full campaign mode. We're 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 trying to get the vote out. Uh, in Texas, we have early voting. Most people er- vote early. Uh, a lot more people vote by ballot. So uh, election day, th- there's still a good amount of people voting on mm-hmm. election day. But, the, but the, the election is somewhat decided by that point. But you're still going to work hard. and You're still going to get out the vote trying to figure out who hasn't voted. So I've got a bunch of events that Sunday. And uh, But my, my phone is blowing up. And I've got, I've got especially SEAL friends are, yes. are, are just laughing at me. You know, our our sense of humor is quite dark. You know, now they're <laughs> pissed too because right. they get to make fun of me. And I mean, just to give you an understanding of how seals think as I was barely able to move, I was still blind getting rolled into the hospital in Bethesda, Maryland. After I got blown up, these guys are asking me, so we can start making fun of you for looking like a pirate for the rest of your life. Right. I mean, this is how they think Yes, and it's fine. You know, these are my brothers. They can make fun of me, but they don't like it when outsiders do. No. And, and so, and, and neither do because veterans. you've
0: been through the same things. You have a common linkage, right. uh, a sense of brotherhood that runs deep.
2: Right. And, and veterans nationwide were also quite upset. Um, it, it, it's important to understand what got them upset so there because there's a variety of jokes that were leveled against me um, none of most of which were actually kind of funny right <laughs> the, the, the hitman in a porno line it is not offensive it's uh, it's <laughs> it brings it's, up a lot of questions, yes. but it's not. But it's, it's not what actually made people angry. Um, it was. It was the dismissive. No, it was the no, dismissive of tone of the the I and the war, or whatever. And um, and we'll never know whether that was a mistake. I mean, after working with Pete, he, he does go off script slightly sometimes, mm-hmm. um, but it is a very highly scripted show. So it's it's hard to tell. And frankly, who cares? Um, the the point is is everybody was really mad, and and so then I had to react. And I was at first I didn't I had. I did not understand the, the, the gravity of what was going on. Um, I didn't understand how this would affect my life for, for years to come at the time. Right. To, to me, it was something I had to figure out how to respond to on Twitter. Right. And, uh, and then just move on to the, to the events I had planned that day. And, um, and so I, I took a line that I'd actually gotten from one of my Harvard professors uh, after the military, when I retired in 2016, I was I was medically discharged. I was well, let's back up a second. I was blown up in 2012. Right. I fought the Navy for a very long time. I did two more deployments. I was finally medically retired in 2016 when they, um, you know, and that's a, a whole other story. Yes. I went to Harvard for, for uh, a master's degree, and and during orientation, uh, I'll never forget this line. He he comes up and he says, "While you're here, try hard not to offend people." And try even harder not to be offended. And I thought it was, so, it was such a perfect line for today's cancel culture, outrage culture on mm-hmm. campuses. It was such a perfect line. And it stuck with me. It was, it was simple. It was profound. And, and it was frankly, it was the right response to, to Pete Davidson at the time. I'm not going to demand outrage. I'm not going to sick the outrage mob on right. Saturday Night Live. Though and you knew it was ready to pounce, and it already pounced by itself. This in is some modern cases. day America; it's always ready to pounce, mm-hmm. and that is the problem. Um, and so, and so, we waited a couple of days. Producers are weathering the storm; they don't know what to do. Um, I, I got some word that, like certain cor- um, uh, corporations, were ready to pull their advertising. I mean, it was bad mm-hmm. for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and again, I didn't. I don't think I understood the gravity of the situation at the time. And. Uh, I had some lower lower level producers reach out just to say sorry, um, and that was it. <laughs> it didn't right. really mean much. Um, and then Lauren Michaels calls. He's the he's the yes. executive producer. He's create creator of the show, and he calls me personally, and we start talking, and you know, obviously offers his apologies. And among and, one of the most influential and powerful people in the industry, still, yeah, yeah, and um, invites me on the show, and I say, uh, well. I I am interested in going on the show, but not this weekend because it's veterans day weekend. And I already have all these things planned. I I can't, you know, it'd be wrong to pull out of them. And, uh, and he, he countered back. He said, well, that's exactly why we need you this weekend because it's veterans day weekend. And obviously that made sense. Right. And, uh, you know, we agreed. Um, and, um, And he said, I could say whatever I wanted and I could have my own monologue and, uh, you know, that they would, they would write a sense of jokes where I, where I rip on Pete Davidson and then I could have my own monologue and that was the deal we struck. And, and so Friday night we, we find ourselves on a, on a a landing in New York city and, uh, and, and starting, starting the, uh, we, we get to our, I bring my whole family by the way. So I bring my, my wife and, uh, and, and my parents got to go and my, my wife's family got to go. And uh, we we got a dressing room right next to Robert De Niro, and uh, not bad. Yeah, no, that's it it was, it was interesting for a whole bunch of reasons, and uh, it was, <laughs> some disgustable probably yeah, some not. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and know, know, I'm gonna I'm
0: gonna hold you right here because I got I've got I've got one little time constraint I've got to deal with. So that's Dan Crenshaw. We're at Carbach Buring in Houston, Texas. The takeout's on the road yet again. I'm Major Garrett back for segment two, and the capper of this great Saturday Night Live story in just a second. CBS News. This is the Takeout with Major Garrett. Always excited and delighted to have the Takeout on the road. We are in Houston, Texas. Carbach Brewing is our host. We thank them for their hospitality. Dan Crenshaw is our guest. He was in the middle of a story about Saturday Night Live, his experience therein. Dan, pick it up, and we should note that where we left the story off, you had
2: just gotten elected, so you were a congressman-elect flying into New York. Yeah, yeah, they were making fun of me as a as a, uh, quote, gross people running for Congress. <laughs> uh, and then uh, then I was congressman-elect. And so, yeah, we, we go through the script. We make some changes. We do some practice. Do it again Saturday. Uh, it's, it's a, and I can go into detail on how the behind the scenes are, if you'd like. I mean, it, it's fun. It's, it's just pure sketch comedy. It's a tiny, tiny space that they have in mm. Manhattan. It, it, it feels very small. Um, you know, three small stages. Uh, and, and you would recognize those stages very quickly. Uh, just from watching the show and it's, it's fun and it's it's high energy that it, it's complete once you actually record it's totally live there's right no, there's no delay there's nothing it's very incredible to watch this entire show go down and how many moving parts there that are involved with that and uh you know it goes pretty well uh i, I will tell you one quick story and, and then and then i'll analyze how this happened you know because i mentioned outrage culture a couple times and and there's a there's a deeper there's a deeper lesson here so after I did my bit, uh, and, uh, you know, again, you played that part where uh, they roll me on stage as Pete is, is apologizing, and then I proceed to roast him. And so, you know, we, we leave it all out there, and, and it goes pretty well. And I come off, and I just get to watch the rest of the show, and, and, and lo and behold, who is behind the scenes, but Steven Spielberg. And uh, I will say, he gave me the best compliment you can possibly get from a guy like Steven Spielberg, which yes. is, he goes... You know, you got pretty great comedic timing, and uh, you know you could have a future in Hollywood with that <laughs> with that kind of with that kind of work. And uh, and I actually nobody was listening, so I had to call my wife over and right. ask him to repeat it. Please just, repeat just so, this, just so I had a witness, um, just for in- intra family
0: posterity. Just repeat that, so my wife can hear it. Yeah, yeah.
2: exactly. Uh, but it's important to note. I just want to note this briefly that it, this could have turned out very differently. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you you noted before how the outrage mob was ready to pounce. And uh, as it often is, you know, we we do have outrage mobs on. on on, Well, I don't even know if this was partisan. This was more. This was certainly more of a veteran community and and, and probably conservatives because in the skit, it was overwhelmingly Republicans that they were that they were roasting. Mm -hmm. You know, plus one Democrat, Um, and so that mattered to a lot of people. Uh, It was it was divisive from the get go, and so. You could have you could have seen this play out a different way. I, I could have I could have sick the outrage mob on mm-hmm. them, and if I had done that, uh, what what would be Saturday Night Live's? You know, what would their what would be their options? They'd either have to they'd either have to they, you know, it, profoundly apologize, you know, just bow to the outrage mob, and mm-hmm. we see this happen all the time, even when right. it's unnecessary. Bow down to the Twitter mob. Uh, or they simply show no sense of shame and say "screw you" and uh, you know we don't we don't care what you say. It, it, those are the only two options these days. We have these what I call extreme senses of shame. Right, one extreme or the other. There's never any nuance. Right. Um, not never. Sometimes there's good examples of nuance, but most of the time, you either bow down or you just don't care what you th- like. You just don't care what they think. And
0: and when you in the process of don't caring, oftentimes turn up the volume of that which originally set the mob exactly. in motion.
2: Exactly. It's just uh, it's it's a tit for tat, but you know, with heavy blows, cultural blows to the face, and uh, it could have. And if I had done that, they wouldn't have invited me on the show. And we wouldn't have had that moment, and you know they would they would have had to just take their lickings, and, and we'd be even more divided than we were before, mm-hmm. and it wouldn't have been productive. And so I think I think America got to kind of breathe a sigh of relief when we did do it differently. And, and the unfortunate part about that is that it surprised a lot of people. It shouldn't be all that surprising when we just when we just allow the the elements to actually work themselves out. Did your reaction? And I'll let you. Offer the description. De-escalation.
0: Create an alternative. Create a space of forgiveness. However you want to phrase it, come to you naturally, or did you run through a series of calculations about that? Well, I kind
2: of just said what I felt. Um, you know, I, I was given an I was given in a a situation where you could imagine that they really didn't mean to offend wounded veterans they obviously meant to offend conservatives that 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 was obvious (laughs) uh but it wasn't obvious that they meant to take a deeper a a deeper punch to the gut about wounded veterans and you could imagine that it wasn't the case and then you know and and i and i would have also been lying if i had said that i was just outraged and emotional about this that's not my nature Mm -hmm. so I would have been showing faux outrage, and I'm not one to do that. So that that went into it, and, and I, I think the response ended up being pretty genuine. We, we, we knew it was going to be a response like that. I was just, the, the debate with me and the team was, how do we phrase it? Right. And then I just went back to my Harvard professor, and, sure. and I wanted to quote that one. Exactly. I want to ask you something,
0: because when I first started covering Congress in 1990, I came across two gentlemen in Congress at the time who left a kind of an impression on me along these lines, Bob Dole and Bob Kerry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they both had a kind of a attitude about political partisan warfare, which went something like this. They would kind of at times look around and say, guys, this isn't the hard stuff. They had both been terribly wounded. Bob Dole in World War II, Bob Kerry in Vietnam. And when I would talk to them, they, they wouldn't go into great detail, but they would just say, look, political battles are one thing, but real-life battles or being in things that are dire and deathly and full of awful consequences, heroism, valor, risk-taking, that's when you sort of get a figure, uh, an impression of life. Mm. And th- they had a kind of arm's-length distance to how intense political battle ought to be. Did any? Is that any... Part of your yeah. worldview?
2: The word you're really talking about is perspective. They, they had perspective. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I, I believe I have a sense of perspective. And that, that perspective is gained from difficult experiences. Um, it's also gained from a sense of humility when even if you don't have any difficult experiences, even if you've never had true hardship in your life, uh, you can at least imagine hardship. And gain perspective that way. That that's a lesson that Americans, I think, need a lot more of. We we have it better than any civilization has ever had it in the history of the world. That's 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 not even Full deb- stop. That's not debatable. Mm-hmm. And yet we our anxiety levels are rising. We're we're over medicated. we we have you know increasing suicide rates among young people. This is a real issue, and, and you got to wonder why that is. And there's probably a variety of reasons. It'd be it'd be wrong to say that it's all due to a lack of perspective, but it's certainly an element. Mm-hmm. It's certainly an element. I mean, you know, I, I get to complain about the Wi-Fi on an airplane at thirty thousand feet because it's intermittent and that's really annoying. <laughs> I hate that. But I get to complain about that, and yet my you know ancestors of just a generation or two ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're complaining about world domination by the Nazis, right? And before that, they couldn't even find water. I mean, we don't worry about being right. dehydrated in this country, or or <laughs> having having diseases that could not
0: be controlled, kill their children and burying right. their children in not surprise. I mean, it was not uncommon two generations or three generations ago for parents to bury their children. Exactly, it and is it is highly unusual now in our country to do that. I'm not saying I'm nostalgic for that, but that shows a level right. of
2: hardship and a level of endurance. That I do feel right. we are psychologically separated from. And, it. and it's important to note. I'm not nostalgic for it either. I don't wish to go back to that. But it is it's a part important of It's important to note that we've lost perspective and we need to gain it back. And I don't want to be overly materialistic either. Yes, we are materially better off. But there's a sense of purpose that is severely lacking in our culture right now. And again, that's a whole hour of discussion <laughs> as to like w- <laughs> why that is. You know, maybe, it's, maybe it's the loss of, of religion. Maybe it's the... Maybe it's a lot of things, um, but it's but it's definitely happening, and it's definitely true. And uh, I think we we owe it to ourselves to to always stop and think: Could it be worse? <laughs> and the answer is most definitely yes. It could. No matter what the problem <laughs> is that you're facing, yes. somebody's had it way worse than you. Yes. And you and if and if you deny that, you're you're denying reality. Right. Um. And uh. So yeah, per- perspective is 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 huge. I mean, I was blind for a long time it's also the story you tell yourself about your hardship and i think that's a very important thing um you know for instance let me let me say this very plainly the when i get blinded by an ied blast you know do i do i have to wear an eye patch or do i get to wear an eye patch and it looks cool Right. There's a difference in how you. there's a perspective right. there and a story that you tell yourself to, to look forward instead of backward. And I want to pick up on that story on the other side of
0: the break. I'm Major Garrett. We're at Carbach Brewing in Houston, Texas. Always excited to have the takeout on the road. Dan Crenshaw is our special guest back for segment three in just a second. From CBS News.
1: This is the takeout
0: with Major Garrett. Dan Crenshaw is our special guest, freshman congressman, Republican. If you hadn't guessed already, second district of Texas. We're in Houston at Carbach Brewing. Dan, uh, at the very beginning of our conversation, and a couple of times you've referenced being b- blown up. Uh, give my audience just a sense of when, where that was, and how it changed your life.
2: Well, that happened in uh, on June fifteenth, two thousand twelve. Uh, the IED threat in southern Kandahar, where we mostly operated, and Helmand province was pretty bad. Mm-hmm. Probably still is. Yes. Oh, definitely still is. Mm-hmm. And uh, that particular day, we were in Helmand. I've never been to Helmand before. We, we operated exclusively out of Kandahar province. And uh, on a last-minute mission to um, help out some of our Marine Corps buddies, I, uh, I was hit by an IED. And the way that happened was—well, well first, let me explain how these things are situated— these are these are effectively personnel landmines, mm-hmm. okay? But they're homemade. They're uh, they're made with uh, a couple panels of wood uh, wrapped in wire. And when those panels of wood get crushed by somebody stepping on them, the wires touch, hit a battery, sends sets off some uh, explosives that are generally made from some kind of um, fertilizer bomb, uh, maybe ten pounds worth of explosives. And uh, they generally don't kill you. They they will take off both your legs. Yeah. And uh, this was a particularly bad one uh, because the the ground was very hard. It was uh, not soft dirt that, that changes the the way it um, just changes the, the nature of the bomb. And uh, there must have been extra. There must have been. It must have been bigger too because my interpreter Rachman, he he stepped on it. I didn't step on it. And uh, but I just happened to be right in, right next to him, staring right at him. Mm. When he stepped on it, he lost all four limbs uh, right away. And I, in my world, just went dark. I, I, I think I do remember seeing a little bit uh, for a little while. So, at least that's what I told people afterwards. My memory is is, is a little fuzzy on that. I remember the the forty five minutes before they put me into a medically induced coma. Right after that, I remember that quite vividly. But I, but I was I was pretty blind, um, and so. What, what happened really was i was the best way to imagine this is that id goes off it, it nearly kills rockman he later dies in the hospital and the the fragmentation hits me the blast hits me and i'm only a couple feet away and so it's like being hit by a truck but everybody in the truck is also shooting you with shotguns like birdshot and uh that's that's that's, that's definitely what my body looked like afterwards right. too um you know and then and, and I had pain everywhere. Uh, not my eyes. I, my eyes. My face was numb, uh, but I had severe pain everywhere else. I didn't know what. I don't know what it shot through me. I wasn't sure. Uh, I, I could get up. I eventually got up and uh, walked to the medevac helo so that I wasn't. so I didn't have to be carried. And uh, they saw my condition. They put me out immediately. And I woke up five days later as uh, doctors in Germany were ripping a. A breathing tube, unceremoniously out of my throat, and uh, telling me that I was blind, and so <laughs> that there was maybe, maybe a small chance I might see out of my left eye someday, but it wasn't, it wasn't a great chance. That you know, I might see colors and maybe some light, but not a good chance of seeing. And, uh, and, and I proved them wrong. <laughs>
0: at, and at, at, at any moment, uh, in the before you were put in the medically induced coma and out for five days, did you
2: fear that you would die? Uh, no okay no now unfortunately for my family back home they they were they were not so sure i think there was a time in that coma where i was unstable and there was some fear of that uh my i i've had a lot of experience with surgeries i've been injured before that and i've always reacted a little funny to anesthesia uh, so but i i did not have life-threatening injuries mm-hmm. uh i went I mean, again i walked away from it right but unfortunately, my wife was getting word that some half my face was gone. I mean it was horrible on her I mean she's that, that's again that's a whole other interview about what it's like for a lot of these women that I know personally who've lost their husbands overseas or uh, or, or suffered through bad injuries mm-hmm. and
0: when you got the news about your eyesight, what was your reaction internally
2: a strange one <laughs> so um I, I was blessed, and I, and I kind of literally mean blessed, and I, I think I believe that God was able to give me the strength to not believe or to believe that I would see again, even though that was not what doctors were telling me. And so my reaction was, yeah, I figured I'd lose an eye. That that was I was I was not overly surprised by that news. And when they told me there's a small chance that I'd see out of my left eye again, I just assumed there was a good chance that I would see out of my left eye again. And uh, that, was, that was truly my mentality, and it did not make sense. It was... It was it was it was illusion um my my condition was really really bad there was they could they could tell that there was some kind of metal still embedded in the eye and that it was that was going to poison the eye eventually so we for days i had fights with doctors in germany about getting me back home as soon as possible to get the surgery done um you know their their timelines were informed by medical realities and logistical realities mine were informed by what the hell i wanted to do at that moment that was a it was, a, it was a truly miserable time. I couldn't really move. My body was beaten pretty bad, swollen. I, I literally could not move. I was hallucinating badly. My, my optic nerve was still firing. So I was seeing Afghanistan all around me. I never left Afghanistan. I knew it wasn't there. I knew it wasn't real, but I never left it. So I, I, was, I was quite literally... Everybody uses the term literally wrong these days. Yes. That's like the new thing in 2020. I was literally living in a nightmare. So, uh, and... Uh, It was, (laughs) it was a strange, terrible experience. Mm -hmm. And describe your eyesight out of your left eye now. Well, it's complicated because uh, what what really happened to my left eye was a bunch of fragmentation shot through it, and it destroyed my iris. It destroyed my lens, like a uh, lens being. You know, when you get a cataract, your lens Mm -hmm. is basically destroyed. Um, Except mine, but your lens. If you imagine your lens in your eye, which is in the middle of your eye, like a window. Um, when doc, when you get a cataract is, you know, in your sixties you get a cataract, doctors just replace the window pane right. and then they, but they can't do that with me because the frame of my window is broken. And so I'll never be able to replace that. But not never. You never know what kind of technology will, will arrive, but it's risky to do it. Mm-hmm. And so I don't, I still don't have a lens. My retina was badly damaged too. I definitely to have surgeries after the cataract was fixed over. We thought we, we thought we were on a great road to sight and then i had a bad bad news when um they found a, a, ge- a degeneration in my retina which would eventually make me go blind and you know, we had to do a, a risky surgery to, to fix that too so i have i have blind spots i have no lens and uh i can't dilate my pupil um do you okay. see colors oh yeah so okay. yeah but, so, but but the good news after all that is i mean i'm looking at you and basically 2020 vision right okay. now uh, I have a specialized contact that allows me to see distance at twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't see up close. I can't read this menu that's in front of us. Mm-hmm. But I just can do. you drive? I yeah. Okay. Yeah, I just memorize the route. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just kidding. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I drive okay. Driving at night is difficult because, because sure. I can't dilate my pupil. The, the glare is terrible. Mm-hmm. But um, it, it's an absolute miracle what I can see. Yes. Uh, again, I can, I can read the menu with eyeglasses, I, just like anybody else uses CVS right. bot right. seeing glasses. So I adapt, I've adapt. i adapted pretty well. And when I don't wear my contact, um, I just have these. I have my, my actual glasses are maybe a quarter inch thick. They're, they're enormous. I'm like a plus 11 mm-hmm. magnification, yeah. so it's intense.
0: Well, you're... Uh sharing a beer and a conversation with a plus nine and a plus eight. So, uh, yeah, that's pretty bad too. Yeah. Yeah. I've had, <laughs> I, I, I've been wearing, uh, well, glasses starting at age five. Let me tell you, that's a heck of a combination. Uh, Horn rim glasses. would be 1967. That was the only available glasses on the market. And, that's right. And the name Major. That was quite popular in kindergarten. Let me tell you. Yeah, Major with glasses. It was. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> and in case everyone uh, is is in any way uh, uncertain about this. I'm a phony major. I have been for 57 years, major in name only. Let's just make sure that's also clarified. (laughs) Uh, Dan, we're going to go to break here in a second, and we'll get to some news of the week and some policy stuff. Um, But before we do that, I want to tee up a question. I want you to think about it before we go into break. Because of your service in Afghanistan, your long history in the SEALs, actually two questions. Is there a culture problem currently within the SEALs? Secondly, did you have or do you have a reaction to the Afghanistan papers published about a couple of months ago? We'll get answers to both of those questions on the other side of this break. I'm Major Garrett. Carbach Brewery in Houston, Brewing in Houston, Texas is our hospitable host. Takeout is on the road again and no one could be happier than me. Stream the takeout on CBSN Fridays at 5 and 9 p.m. Eastern and Saturdays at 1 and 9 p.m.
1: Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time.
0: CBS News. This is The Takeout
1: with Major Garrett.
0: Welcome back. You know, sometimes in the show we do a lot of news of the week and sometimes we just do a lot of biography. Quite obviously this episode is a lot of biography because our guest has a valuable and I believe important one, Dan Crenshaw. Freshman congressman, 2nd District of Texas. We're in Houston, which is where that district is in part. And I left Dan with two questions hanging somewhat in the air as we went to break the Afghanistan papers for the audience who may not remember a quick refresher it's very very quick lots of papers internal documents from the government that said all the progress being represented to the public in Afghanistan for many many years was not true and people who were writing the analysis knew it and for those uh, and I Dan this is of no particular interest to you but I have several friends who are Afghan veterans and they felt it when they were there uh, at various times I wonder if you felt it when you were there Mm -hmm. or do you have any recollection or reflection on it now
2: yeah well, what you're seeing from the Afghan papers is what you would see from any large, complex organization doing a very complex mission. There's going to be very different opinions on how well things are going. Uh, there is, there is what, it, what those papers also expose is, is what we all felt, which is there is definitely a tendency to give better glowing reviews of, of what your past six months has been, because your deployments are six to nine months, maybe mm-hmm. a year, depending on your branch of service. And you want to be able to say that you made progress in that 12 months. I mean, it's, there's a huge impetus to do that. And it's just human nature. I, I wouldn't say there's a problem within department of defense. It's that's human nature. That's what you want to be able to show. And you're going to talk about the good stuff and you're, you're going to make it sound that way. Um, I, I think it's good that the Afghan papers came out actually and, and, and forced us to rethink that mm-hmm. uh, just as military officers. I, I don't mind that they came out. I don't, I don't think they represent some broad conspiracy. I, some people will take it that way, mm-hmm. and that's the wrong way to take it. Right. It represents a very different um, uh, opinion on, on an analysis, because you said the word analysis, and that's what it is. It's analysis on how we're doing. Um, and, and I would rather have a more honest conversation about... What our actions were doing well and, and, and what we accomplished and, and what we weren't accomplishing. So,
0: Does anything about that or, or anything you've learned since you've been in Congress inform you
2: about whether or not we should stay any longer in Afghanistan? Yeah. Um, the, the Afghan papers don't because I, mean, I was on the ground. I, they're not telling me anything that I didn't know already. The, we have to take a step back and wonder what our strategic value is in Afghanistan. We should always ask that question. And the answer still remains, would we be better off if we just let it fall to the Taliban? That's really the question. The question isn't what it, we're... It has are, always been the question. It, well, but that's unfortunately not how people phrase the question, even mm-hmm. though they should. Mm-hmm. They they usually frame the question as, as uh, why do, can't we bring our troops home? Why, been why, there why, are, so why, long? why are we sacrificing? And those are, those are frankly, those are cheap shots um, at a very complicated strategy. And Well, it's not actually that complicated. It's deterrence against future strongholds for terrorists. That's really what it comes down to. Now we sh- now now you can have a very good nuanced conversation on on how many troops we should have there, what are th- what their mission should be, and how we should be engaging. Um, I think I think it's reasonable to say that we should hold a few like a, a good amount of you know a, a smaller force there, s- similar to the force we already have, uh, that engages in certain counterterrorism operations, maintains relationships with the Afghan government. Continues to train and equip them and and make sure that they can eventually do the job. But the days of, of roaming around great fields where I was getting blown up, are I, those are over. Unless we're going to put 200,000 troops there and hold the territory, it's over and it needs to be over. And, and I'll say that. But, you know, our problem is, just like in Vietnam and just like in so many wars we've fought, you take that hill and then you give it up. And that is a terrible strategy, and we did that for years, and it, and it was politically driven. The military always knew it was bad. We always knew it was bad, but it was always politically driven because everybody wants to promise they're going to bring the troops on because it makes people feel so good. Right. And politicians are happy to get reelected by making you feel good instead of being honest with you. And if we had been honest with the American people, we would have said, we're going to crush this, we're going to win it, and uh, we're going to be better off. But it's going to take a little bit of sacrifice. Are you with us? And this is why we're doing it. But politicians were never honest about that. Now we have a large population of people on the right and the left that is vastly has been lied to for a long time about about the good reasons that we needed to be there. So that's a that's where we're at on that. <laughs> I hear you loud and clear. I asked
0: you about the culture within the seals, and I want to define that for you. Mm-hmm. Meaning. Disciplinary problems that are not Disproportionate to the society at large But disproportionate for the SEAL culture itself Meaning Mm -hmm. the standards it has historically Held itself to And expects of itself And if it is a problem Is it a problem that
2: does or does not Compromise effectiveness Yeah Is there a wide scale disciplinary Problem in the SEAL teams I, I don't have all the data To really say one way or the other There's certainly that presumption that is uh, that was in the media and flag officers tend to have an incentive to come out and say of course there is because uh, well be, they have that incentive because once you're a flag officer you're a little bit more politically motivated you have a career ahead of you you've got to get that you got to get that next star and and also in, in a more to their credit they 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 are very very concerned with protecting the brand and uh, and sometimes that takes some introspection and uh, I've, gone, I've, I've seen this happen many times in my own career where you, you have a few incidents, even minor incidents, and there's a, there's a severe backlash from the top and uh, maybe a bit of a knee-jerk reaction. Right. Everybody has to cut their hair. You know, right. it's, it's like your basic military bearing stuff. Everybody's going to have inspections, and this goes on. This, goes, this has happened many, many there's times. There's an ebb and flow sometimes. It, it just happens, mm-hmm. and it, it especially happens when we're uh, less busy, when there's, we're more in peacetime. And this is a, <laughs> I know people don't realize that, right. but this is for the SEAL teams. This is peacetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, very few SEALs are in combat and are seeing combat on deployments. And so that that all of that combines to this. What is maybe a bit of an overreaction? It doesn't mean you ignore the problems that exist. It just means that you should be balanced about it and be honest about what's happening and what isn't happening. And um, so. So I didn't really give you an answer, all right? I, 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 because, I noticed that. Well, because it's nuanced, and it, there is no yes or no answer. Is there a, is there a disciplinary problem? Ah, so just because a flag officer orders a review and says there's a problem doesn't mean there is one? It, it, not to the extent that maybe journalists are writing about it. You know, and and it's overblown. It's, it's a little overblown, and um, and again, I'm not in it either. Mm-hmm. So it's a little, it's it's also a little hard for me to answer because again, I, I don't have the numbers. I don't. I'm not right. seeing exactly what's happening.
0: But to put it in context, you're a member of Congress. You have the ability to pick up the phone to call anyone to request any data set, and it, as a SEAL yourself, it does not rise to the level of intensity for you. Right. When I talk to, to, to flag
2: officers, it. and when I talk to my old friends who are obviously much lower than flag officers. I get different stories. It's a complex organization, right? And, and you're trying to. You know, if, you're, if you're trying to generalize a problem, well, then if you, when you talk to different people at different levels of, of the commands, you're going to get different answers, just like you would with any organization. So we had we had some bad eggs and, and some disciplinary problems. Uh, doesn't mean there's widespread problems. No, not necessarily. That's the voice of Dan Crenshaw, Major Garrett. We're at Carbach Brewing. Houston, Texas, delighted to take the show on the
0: road. I'm Major Garrett. We'll see you next week. For more from this week's conversation, download the Takeout Outtake Especial, Tuesday morning, wherever you get your podcasts. The Takeout is produced by Arden Farin, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, and Ellie Watson. CBSN production by Eric Susanen and Grace Seegers. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, visit takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News Radio. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey.